0: First Kings 5, First Kings chapter 5. The whole theme of the book of Kings, first and second, is covenants and character. Remember, it was all one book originally, and so the writer is focusing in on you know, God's character and the covenant God made with Israel, with David, and then he is also focusing in on various individuals' character. We're looking at Solomon right now and whether they kept their side of the covenant that God made with them. Last week, we looked at the logistics of Solomon's reign, and in chapter 4, it mentioned how much money came into Solomon's government from foreign nations, a time where Israel lived in peace and prosperity without any fear of war from their neighbors. And so, unlike David, who was involved in many wars, Solomon gets to focus on the task that David could not do, build the temple. And so this evening, we'll see Solomon begin following through on that charge that David gave him. And as he's in the middle of that, God's going to remind him to follow through on another charge. So chapter 5, we begin in verse 1. And it says, In Hiram king of Tyre sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. And Solomon sent to Hiram Saying, You know how that David my father could not build a house unto the name of the Lord his God, for the wars which were about him on every side, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke unto David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set upon your throne in your room, he shall build a house unto my name. Now, Therefore, command you that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with your servants. And unto you will I give hire for your servants according to all that you shall appoint. For you know that there is not among us any that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. So we meet this individual here at the start of the chapter named Hiram. It calls him the King of Tyre. The kingdom of Tyre was the principal seaport on the Phoenician coast. The Phoenicians were a group of nation-states in what we would call modern-day Lebanon. Tyre was in the south of that modern-day area of Lebanon, so Tyre is just north of Israel. Hiram became king of Tyre at the age of 19 during the same time that David was king over Israel, and David and Hiram had a mutual enemy in the Philistines. One of the things that we don't get from the Scriptures, because Israel is not a a maritime nation, is the Philistines were a seafaring people. And David formed an alliance with Hiram against the Philistines. David focused on breaking their power on land, and Hiram focused on breaking their power on the sea. And they were successful. And this allowed Hiram to launch a colonial empire that spread over the entire Mediterranean region as far as Spain. So we don't read about that in the Scriptures. You learn about this from other places in history. But these are… David and Hiram are two pretty powerful individuals at this time. Their nations are prospering very well. We find out in 2 Samuel 5.11 that David contracted with Hiram for materials and craftsmen to help construct David's personal palace. So there's a relationship there, a treaty in a sense between these two nations. And so when Solomon takes the throne… Hiram seeks to renew his treaty with Israel. And so it says that he sent his servants, he sends these emissaries unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father. And then it gives us a little tidbit of information here, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. Don't let weird people interpret that in a weird way. That's not what that's saying. The word here, it means to have an affection based on a close relationship. It refers to family love or friendships. In other words, what the Bible's telling us here is that in Hiram's mind, the two of them were not just allies, they were friends. But what's interesting, though, is he doesn't have that kind of relationship with Solomon yet. And so he he sends some emissaries to Israel to find out where they stand. What's interesting is in Solomon's response, he doesn't, doesn't just renew the treaty. He sends emissaries back to Hiram with a proposal for a business deal, which will expedite the process of constructing the temple. So, verse 2, it says, Solomon sent to Hiram. So, he sends this message to Hiram through emissaries. You know how that David, my father, could not build a house under the name of the Lord his God for, because of the wars that were about him on every side, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Solomon may not know Hiram very well, but he knew that his father and Hiram were close. Close enough friends that Hiram would understand the challenges David faced while he reigned, the numerous coup attempts and civil wars that were going on. And he explains when my dad was king, he could not do anything else but focus on these things until God finally gave him victory and and he could have peace in the end. But he explains that he could not build a temple because of those wars. David explained it a little bit differently. In First Chronicles 22 two eight. David said that God forbade him from building the temple because there was too much blood on David's hands. So I don't know why Solomon phrases it differently to Hiram. It's possible he didn't know the truth. He may phrase it this way because it's, what Hiram would understand. Maybe he doesn't want to offend him because Hiram was a man of war too. Uh, Him and David had allied, so maybe he didn't want to offend him. But the point that Solomon makes here is that the situation is different now during my reign. Verse 4, but now the Lord my God has given me rest. And I love that he calls him my God. Solomon doesn't say my dad's God. He says my God. Solomon at this point in his life is in close relationship with the Lord. And that's a great question for us. Am I in close relationship with the Lord right now? I used to have a phrase I would say, I would say, oh, this period in my life was a time of my greatest growth in Christ. And you know what I realized? If I kept saying that over and over and over again, it meant that I really wasn't growing like I probably should be now. And I thought, Lord, that's not right. I remember I got convicted by that. And I said, Lord, I want now to be the time that I'm closest to you than I've ever been. I want now to be the time that's my greatest period of growth. And so it is a challenging thought. Am I close to the Lord in this point right now in my life? Or anytime I reference being close to the Lord or things God's done in my life, are they always somewhere in my past? Well, he says, but now the Lord, my God, has given me rest, he says, on every side so that there is neither adversary, I have no Military opposition, and there's neither evil occurrence, which just means events that are bad, uh, events that you don't want to have happen. The crops are good, life's good, I don't have any enemies. And so he says in verse 5 he says, And behold, I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. Chapter four, of course, gave us that very detailed description of Solomon's prosperity. But remember, it also mentioned that all Israel was experiencing good times. So this was the ideal period to start a building project. And so Solomon says, "I purpose to do this. The time is now." Now, remember, the building the temple was not Solomon's idea. The plan to build the temple was David's idea. In fact, David tells us that he got the blueprint from God and he acquired all the materials before he died. I find this interesting because I was reading a few commentaries where they were talking about how they felt like the temple was not God's will by some of the things God says in this chapter. And I didn't get that. And I thought to myself, well, if David claims he got the blueprint from God, I kind of think that makes it God's will. <laughs> Some people critiqued it for being too elaborate and too majestic and too beautiful. And to be honest, I have had people in the course of my life mention that to me in the two churches I've pastored and said, well, don't you think this is a little bit too, too much? And I'm like, what's too much? I'm like, there's a section in the Old Testament where it mentions that God gave, and there is too much, by the way, but there's a section in the Scripture in the Old Testament where it mentions that when God was instructing Moses about how to weave the priest's garments together, he explains that they're not just for holiness, but they're also for beauty. They're also for beauty. And so I understand that if we, start, if we start serving art rather than letting art help us worship the Lord, then we've just erected some new idol, and we don't want to do that, Okay but there's nothing spiritual about having older seats that are uncomfortable, all right? There's absolutely nothing spiritual about that. There's nothing spiritual about poverty in and of itself or things that don't work in and of itself. There's there's nothing spiritual in and of that just in the same way that there's nothing spiritual in and of prosperity. All of those things are neutral things. The question is, is what's the heart behind it and what is the Lord doing? And so sometimes people come to me and they'll say, hey, I've got this idea and, and I'd love to, we'll donate this material. Or, or, hey, I've got an idea. I'd like to construct this. And, and hey, I hear you're working on this. And I've got a talent for this. And we have very gifted people. And they come and they serve and they, they make something beautiful. I love it. I love it. Like I, there's a picture in there from the, the student conference that depicts someone crying out to the Lord. And the whole theme was true salvation. And someone had heard that and and said, I I can make something that would be a a depiction of just that. And they have a gift with that. And so they they did it, and there it was. And it was a cool blessing. Someone could look at that and go, well, that's a little gaudy. Do we really need that? Well, no, we don't need anything. But I don't think when you look at the world that God is a boring individual. Again, if we start serving those things and we're running after that. We want to look nice or we want to, we want to make sure people see that we're the best or whatever. Like, yeah, then, we've, then it's too much. Then we've gotten off pace. Then we've gotten off the path. You know, but if things are being birthed in people's hearts and they just serve it and they have a talent and stuff… I love how it mentions so many times in the Scripture, we'll get to it later on, I think, with the temple, how there's a a gifted individual, probably not tonight, but there's a gifted individual that God calls by name to make certain things for the temple because it required a skilled craftsman. I really think we have to be careful not to glorify either one of those two things. You know, sometimes you can walk into a church and you're like, man, I'm waiting for the, this verse brought to you by, I mean, you're waiting for the advertisement or something because everything's so commercialized and stuff. I get it. I don't want to be that. But again, I don't, I don't want someone to come in and be like, well, you know, I'd love to come here, but man, I can't even see because the lighting's like from 1942. I don't think that's honoring the Lord either. So, anyway, this is a really long aside <laughs> or maybe a rant to <laughs> so get back to the Bible. David got his blueprint from God is the point. And I think even if we have opinions or ideas about how things should be, we have to be very careful not to implant those upon the scripture and influence how we understand the scripture, and rather just let the Bible speak for itself. So the plan was not Solomon's. it was David's. Uh, and David, however, gave Solomon the job of executing the plan. And so Solomon is saying it's time to follow through. I'm, I'm going to follow through on that, and this business proposal is, is part of how I, I, I think I can make this happen. And so he says, listen, I've purposed to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. That is interesting. He doesn't say, I purposed to build a house for my God to live in, right? He doesn't say that because that's not what the temple was for. In fact, David in 1 Chronicles 28.2 explains what the temple was for, and he calls it God's footstool. He says in 1 Chronicles 28.2, Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So this is important because the, the pagans in the, in the region, they built temples to be housed for their idols. I remember the first time I understood this and got this. I was down in... Um, I was down in... Peru, and we had gone to the Inquisition Museum down in Peru, and they kept bringing up this. And this is the the uh, uh, the, the Fatima or the, the Mary of, and they would name a city. and And I was we're in the tour, and, and I'm asking a question. I, said, I finally, I said, listen, you keep mentioning. Well, this is the Mary of this, and I said, why why is that important? Like, is that just because it was like a historically unique artwork or something? And he he says, well, no, no, that's the Mary of that city. And and I thought, I don't understand. He goes, okay, let me maybe put it to you in terms you might understand. He goes, this is the Mary idol they would bring out that people would then bow down to and worship. And I was like, and then I got it. It clicked with all, all the concept of pagan temples and things like that the idea was is they would need to build a place. It wasn't for their idea of God. It was their, hi, here's our little God. Here's our God. And and we're going to go now and bow down to him. And so the idea of the temple was never to be that. We don't have a graven image that is our God. Our God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth, right? We don't have any image of him because he is almighty God. He is not limited by a little doll that someone makes or or, or an ornate carving or something along those lines or a metallic figure. Our God is the living God who has no boundaries. He is almighty God, king of kings. So Solomon is not building a house for his God to live in, but he says it's a house unto the name of my God. This was a place where God's people would come worship and come fellowship with their God. The temple was about His name, His character, and His way of doing things, the idea that that would be in the midst of Israel and that it would be a place where His glory would shine upon them and then through them to the rest of the world. Later on, we'll see Solomon verbalize this very clearly. He goes, you don't dwell in a house made with hands. What house could contain you, right? Right? So Solomon, he understands this, and he's explaining. He goes, this is a big deal. I need to build a house unto the name of my God. I've I've been given a charge, and I need to follow through, and now's the time. And so he explains. I'm doing this because God has decreed it too, Hiram. As the Lord spoke unto David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set upon your throne in your place, he shall build a house unto my name. And and that's me. So verse 6. He says, I want you to understand, Hiram, that you are fulfilling God's will in this. I want you to partner with me in this project. And so now, therefore, command you that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with your servants, and unto you will I give hire. In other words, name the price, however, whatever it costs for your servants to cut down the trees and ship them to me. He says, whatever the cost, I will give hire for your servants according to all that you shall appoint, for you know that there is not among us any that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. We don't have the skill set for this. Verse 7, when Hiram gets this news, this, this request to kind of alter how the treaty works, it came to pass when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly. In other words, he's saying, I don't have an enemy on my south border now. <laughs> this guy wants to work with me. So he's very happy about this. The alliance will continue. They're just now, now they're going to haggle over terms. And he, he rejoiced greatly and he said, blessed be the Lord this day, which is given unto David a wise son over this great people. Some people say, well, Hiram was a believer too. I'm not sure that this is enough information to prove that, especially because later on in Israel's history, the Sidonians are going to have a serious negative impact upon Israel. Jezebel is the son of a Sidonian king, our son, daughter of a Sidonian king. So, I mean, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of believers in that area. So, I don't know. I I wouldn't be surprised if David influenced this man to come to faith in, in the Lord through their friendship. David, unlike many of his contemporaries, did seem to understand God's love for all people. I think that's an important application for us. We should always be confident to tell anyone we meet that God loves them and that Jesus died for their sins, no matter their culture, no matter their background, no matter their past. Well, after Hiram's initial kind of, okay, we're not going to go to war, when Solomon's emissaries come, he takes some time to consider his response. Verse 8, we see his response. And Hiram, it says, sent to Solomon saying, I've considered the things which you sent to me for, and I will do all your desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon unto the sea and I will convey them by sea in, in floats. He's basically what he's going to do is take the logs, and this is how you transport logs back then. He's going to take the logs, strap them together into like a raft, and then tug them down by some boat down, down to some location where they'll be picked up. He mentions here, I'll take them in rafts unto the place. We learn from the book of Chronicles that the place is Joppa, which is not far from the city of Tyre. We'll take them down there to the place that you shall appoint me, and we'll cause them there to be discharged. We'll break them back up again, and then you shall accomplish, uh, and then you shall receive them. And then you shall accomplish, sorry, I lost my spot. You shall accomplish my desire in giving food for my household. So this is the haggling now. He says, I'll do this, but here's my, you asked me what my price was, and my price is I want you to basically feed everybody in my palace. It doesn't tell us how long he has to do that, But it goes down in verse 10, and it's going to give us some of the details of what that was. So the idea is cutting down the trees, transporting the trees to Israel is Hiram's responsibility. Solomon getting the trees from wherever they're transported in Israel to Jerusalem is Solomon's responsibility. And then the price will be that you're going to take care of my palace. Year by year is what the deal says in verse 11. So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 measures of wheat for food for his, to his household and 20 measures of pure oil. Thus gave Solomon to Hiram year by year. Um, that works out to about 20% of what it took to feed Solomon's palace. So you, maybe you get a little bit of an idea why Hiram kind of did a whoo when Solomon's being friendly with him because Israel was much more powerful than Tyre at this time. And so year by year, we don't know how many years Solomon did this. It doesn't tell us. And so I don't really know who who came out ahead on the deal, but the point is that the deal was amenable to both parties, and it becomes the basis for this new treaty, verse 12. And so the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as He promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and they two made a league, a treaty together. I love here that it just drops in the fact that the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon. In other words, even this treaty was part of that, to figure out how to build the temple. Again, I have a hard time believing that that God wasn't in favor of Solomon building the temple if it mentions here that this was God's wisdom that helped Solomon procure this business deal. You know what I mean? Sometimes we just need to go with what the Bible says and be simple and not complicate things. Well, we always need to do that, not sometimes. Something interesting here in verse 12, when it mentions the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised, the word promised here, it just means as he spoke. I think that's cool because God speaking is as good as a promise because God always does what he says he'll do. And you know what? That's a phrase that you might want to do this if just you like to dig into your Bible, but underline every time you see that phrase, as he promised, as he promised in the book of 1 Chronicles because the writer mentions it a lot. The author makes a point of bringing this up over and over and over, that God keeps his covenant. One of the things that's easy to forget when we read our Bible is that the people, there was a real individual who wrote the books we're reading, and he wrote it, or she wrote it. Actually, I don't think anybody, never mind. He wrote it. I'm I'm thinking she because some of the songs that are mentioned, like Miriam has a song that's in Scripture. All the things that are in the Scriptures, they're there because someone made a decision that they wanted to tell someone something. No one is writing any of the books of the Bible just going, oh, it's my turn to do some history. They all have specific intent. They all have a purpose for writing. They have a plan that they're they're trying to reach a group of people with a message. So, we need to remember that this is not just some guy writing a history book. Remember, this is an exile, an exile in Babylon who is writing to all the other exiles in Babylon to encourage them that God has not forsaken them, that God has always been faithful to Israel, and that He will continue to keep all of His promises despite Israel's sin. If you're in a rough place right now, whether because of your own sin or your own poor decisions or because life is just hard sometimes, know this, God keeps his promises. He keeps his side of the deal. So look to him, turn to him because he never fails to be faithful. Now to transport all that wood, Solomon is gonna need to conscript a ton of workers. And so verses 13 through 18 tells us how he did that. Verse 13, and King Solomon raised a levy. That's a very polite way of saying that he forced people to work for him for his projects. This is the word levy means forced labor for government projects. So King Solomon forced a group of individuals, it mentions here 30,000 men, to work on this project of transporting the wood. And it says he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month by courses. A month they were in Lebanon, and two months at home. And then it tells us that Adoniram was the head of the Department of Labor, that he was over the conscripts. Um, I think it's interesting, Solomon, it mentions he pulled from all Israel, so he did not favor any tribes. He didn't take advantage of any one tribe. He pulled people from all the tribes. And then it mentions here that they served in shifts. So there were three shifts of of workers, 10,000 in each shift. So for four months a year, one month on, two months off, one month on, two months off, they would work for Solomon, and then the other eight months they could work for themselves. Now, it is extremely likely that Solomon did not pay these men, which obviously would have been a hardship for their families for the duration of the project. But that, if you remember, is why Samuel had warned Israel about asking for a king. He had told them, this this forced labor is part of what your king is going to do to you. And you know, this forced labor will eventually create bitterness in the people, and it's going to be the reason that the kingdom splits into two nations after Solomon dies, which again is just a good reminder that God's ways are better than mine, right? They're always better than mine. Well, Solomon had to conscript more than just the 30,000 people assigned to transport the wood from Joppa, verse 15. And Solomon had 70,000, King James says three score and 10,000. If you ever wonder what a score is, it's twenty. So Solomon had 70,000, that it tells us bear burdens, just this means common workers. And then he had four score, 80,000 hewers in the mountains. So these would be those who quarried the stone. This was, verse 16 says, beside the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, 3,300, which ruled over the people that wrought in the work. Since it does not mention this group of 150,000 men were taken out of all the tribes of Israel, like the other 30,000, these were most likely non-Israeli conscripts. These were most likely Gentile conscripts. These would either be Canaanites who still lived in the land, or they would be tribute from nations that had sworn loyalty to Solomon. And these guys were responsible. Hiram handled the woodwork, but Israel had to handle the masonry. So, these folks were in there working on the quarry, uh, carving out stone. And then verse… 17 and 18 tells us they would bring the stone to more skilled craftsmen. This is a massive building project. You got 150,000 workers on the quarry, 30,000 on the wood, and so it required managers to oversee the process, and then it required skilled craftsmen, verse 17. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones, and huge stones to lay the foundation for the temple, for the house. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the stone squares in other words, to make them usable for building a foundation. So, they prepared timber and stones to build the house, the temple. So, one group quarried it, the other group… and they they quarried both just normal stone, and then they quarried also, it says, precious or rare stones because they would have precious metals they would have to use to beautify the temple in the way that Solomon wanted to build it. So, chapter 6, the work on the temple begins… So says, and it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Zif, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, this is kind of one of those verses that you just kind of read in your Bible and pass on and don't usually think twice about it. But there's a couple really important things in this verse. Number one, it names the year that the Exodus occurred. It tells us in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt. Now, based on other events in Israel's later history, we can firmly fix the date of Solomon's reign around 970 B.C. The date the writer gives us here is important because it tells us the exodus happened, therefore, around 1450 B.C. Now, the majority opinion in archaeology today is that's impossible. The majority opinion in archaeology today states that the Exodus could only fit into Egypt's history around 1250 B.C. because there was no city of Ramses prior to that. It didn't come around until Ramses II reigned in the 12th century B.C. Now, how many of you have seen the Prince of Egypt cartoon movie? Yeah, not accurate. How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments? That's a classic. Charlton Heston, right? Ramses, you know… We do that, and the reason they do that is because that's where the majority of archaeologists believe this occurred. However, that is impossible if we look at the biblical account. Most modern archaeologists will say, well, the Bible can't be true because these years must be all weird. Now, this problem is easily solved if you don't accept that every other historical account in history is flawless, but the Bible is fallible. It's easily solved if we don't accept the Egyptian accounts of their own history as being perfectly honest. It's extremely common, no Egyptologist will deny this, that the Egyptians frequently wiped out parts of their history that reflected poorly on them. I can imagine that if you read the account of the book of Exodus, where an entire, you know, army is drowned in the sea and your whole nation is wrecked according to the book of Exodus, that's not something you'd be happy to write about. What's fascinating is that a papyrus dating to the end of the old kingdom in Egypt was found in the early 19th century. It's right set at this time, the time that the Bible says. It's an account of an Egypt suddenly bereft of leadership. If Pharaoh died in the Red Sea, which is, I personally believe, suddenly bereft of leadership, violence is rampant, foreign invaders are everywhere with no one to hold them in check, and slaves have disappeared, taking all the wealth of Egypt with them. I'm not making this up. It's written by a man named Aipuwer, and this is a direct quote. He says, "'Plague is throughout the land. Blood is everywhere. The river is blood. Trees are destroyed. No fruit or herbs are found. Forsooth grain is perished on every side, and the land is not light. It's dark. Gold and lapis lazuli, silver and malachite, carnelian and bronze are fastened on the necks of female slaves.'" fascinating. It is easy to disprove the Bible if you're looking in the wrong places for events that occur in the Bible. In other words, if you assume that all other ancient literature is perfectly honest, but the Bible is lying, well, then it's easy to disprove the Bible. There's an agnostic… I can't talk tonight. (laughs) There's an agnostic Egyptologist named David Roll and he rejected the egyptian account of their own history and he decided to start looking in other points in history for evidence of the exodus and what he found was tons of evidence for the exodus now roll is not a believer he's an agnostic and he rejects god's divine intervention he sees it all as chance he sees it all as just bad circumstances that wrecked the nation of egypt during this time But while he rejects God's intervention in bringing Israel out of Egypt, I think his finds show why it's important for us to keep digging and not to dismiss the biblical account simply because it doesn't fit my narrative. Now, if you want to watch that documentary about his discoveries, it's called Patterns of of Evidence. It's fascinating. It came out in 2014. Man, I was watching it. I was glued to it because the guy's much smarter than I am, and the things he's explaining, they just make sense. So, if you want to watch that on your own, again, he's not a believer. The documentary is not necessarily geared towards believers, but it is a fascinating watch if you want to get into some of the details of the challenges you face when you're studying ancient history. Well, at the end of the verse here, it tells us that he began doing this in that year in the month of Zif. Uh, it says, which, uh, I'm sorry, in the fourth year of King Solomon's reign, he did it in the month of Zif, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. It's possible that the reason he didn't start for four years is because that's how long it took to get all the stone and wood transported. Either way, whether he waited four years or that's how long it took to get to this point, the point is Solomon did not wait long to follow through on his commitment to build the temple. And I encourage you, don't wait long to follow through on your commitments to the Lord. The longer you wait, the easier it is to not follow through. Verse 2, and Ziph is around the month of May if you're wondering. Verse 2 says, "In the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof… All right, can we throw up a graphic? Because I can't do this. I'll put you all to sleep if I don't give you some pictures. There we go. So, it's going to give us first off here the, the main structure's dimensions. It says that the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, it says the length thereof was three score cubits. So, we've got a situation here. A cubit is about a, uh, 18 inches, a foot and a half. And so um, the main structure here, you've got, this is what's being described. None of this other stuff is being described right now. It's just this building right here. You've got the Holy of Holies, that little compartment there. And then you've got the most holy place here. So what he's describing is, is the general structure of the building. And it says here that the structure was 90 feet long. That's what 60 cubits would be. And then the breadth here, it says, is 35 feet wide that's the breadth, and then the height is 45 feet high. So the the entire structure here, this entire structure is only about 3,100 square feet, 3,150 to be exact. And so while this was about double the size of the tabernacle, it's really not that big. I mean, some of you might even own homes that are larger than this structure. Verse 3, he goes on, he's going to next mention the porch. The porch is This area right here where you see the two pillars, it's this little structure here. He says in the porch before, in front of the temple, um, the word porch just means the entrance hall. So the entrance hall in front of the temple, it was 20 cubits was its length according to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. So this area was about one-third the size of the main structure, uh, but it was with the same width. Verse 4, and for the house he made windows of narrow lights. This one, I like this picture because it mentions the windows here and there. So, uh, these windows, it mentions they were narrowing, um, and and that means they were wider on the inside, and then they would narrow as you would get closer to the outside because you didn't want big windows because this is the holy of holies, you know? I mean, like, no one can go in there. Well, that's great. I'll just go over here and watch, you know? I mean… It's the Holy of Holies, so you don't, you don't have a big, huge window. So it was larger inside, the, the space, and then it would get narrower so you, you couldn't see inside. Uh, the reason you needed these windows is for airflow, for light, and also to give an exit for the smoke from the incense that was being burning in there so you could serve in there. Verses 5 through 8, it says here now, and against the wall of the house, so right up against the main structure, he built chambers round about against the wall of the house round about, both of the temple and of the oracle, the temple being the holy place, the oracle being the holy of holies, and he made chambers round about. Now, this, again, just feels like repetitive language, but it's not. The words for chambers here are actually different. He built three structures. You had one here one in the back, and then one on the other side you can't see, that surrounded the Holy of Holies, the, the holy place, the main structure. And, and the word here for chambers, it means structures, but then the second word for chambers just means side rooms. So he built these three other structures, and then inside of those structures, he made these side rooms. And it says here these were constructed right up against the main structure all around, except for the entrance, of course. And then he tells us it was divided into three stories. He says in verse 6, the nethermost, or the lowest chamber, was five cubits broad, and then the middle chamber, the second story, was six cubits broad, and then the third, the third story, the the highest chamber, was seven cubits broad. For without in the wall of the house he made narrowed rests round about, that the beams should not be fastened in the walls of the house. Now, don't let your eyes glaze over. The idea, is all the writer's telling us, is he's saying the rooms were smaller on the bottom, and then they got bigger on the second, and then they were the largest on the top, which sounds a little odd. Like, why would you make, normally, like, if you're building something, at least when I was a kid and I built something, you had the, you had the broad was the bottom, and then you got skinnier as you went up. But this is not the case with these side chambers that are in here. He's saying that there was smallest on the bottom, and then it got a little bit bigger in the second, and the biggest on the top. Now there's a reason for this. And he explains, he says that we did this, he explains how they did it, he says, for without in the wall of the house, he made narrowed rests, which means uh, offset recesses or ledges. In other words, the wall of these side structures, these side rooms, they were straight on the outside, like there's no layering here. But he he layered it on the inside… The rooms of the inside were one and a half feet wider as you went up, so that none of them were right up against the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place. And again, the, the purpose is, is this is the Holy of Holies. We don't want to we don't the only thing between you and the Holy of Holies is a piece of wood. He wanted to create space there because this is where the very presence, the glory of the Lord, is going to be. Well, we keep reading in verse 7, and the house, when it was in building, was built of stone made ready. It's actually two words there, made ready. It means completely finished quarry stones. So it says here, the house, when it was in building, He made it with stones that were all chiseled and and shaped perfectly before they even got to the site. And so they could just set them in before they were brought there, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in the building." I don't know exactly why they did it this way, but some have suggested that it kind of harkens back to one of the rules that God had about how you built an altar. One of the things that the Israelites were not allowed to do with the altar is they were not allowed to construct ornate altars. He even told the Lord that if it's not the brass altar, he said, you're just gonna make an altar somewhere, you make it of dirt. Simple, keep it really simple. Because he didn't want any attention on the altar instead of the sacrifice so some people have said that the reason that Solomon on site didn't want to have any hammers and chiseling and any of that going on is because he was kind of honoring that idea that once it's there all the attention's on the lord and it's not on the process of what we made or built we keep reading and i don't know if that's the case because it doesn't tell us but i think it's a decent guess Verse 8, and then he mentions how you would get to these upper stories. He says, the door for the middle chamber was in the right side of the house, and they went up with winding stairs. That's a bad translation. I doubt they had winding stairs. Into the middle chamber and out of the middle into the third. And you can see this little stairway there. It would go in, and then there'd be another one inside that would go up, and then another one that would go up again. And that's how you would get between the three floors. Yeah, that's all I got to say about that. Verse 9. We get to the final touches here, verse 9, so he built the house, and he finished it. The stone part, he built the stone part, and then he finished it, it says, and covered the house with beams and borders of cedar. So he, everything was made of stone, it was the base, but obviously stone's not very pretty, uh, not very, very ornate. And so he then covered all of the stone work with wood. With beams and boards, it means with roof and with siding. And so that was kind of the final finish to the building because then you could they you could layer on the wood, you could layer gold, which is how we're going to see later on the temple looked from the outside. It's not made of solid gold, it's stone, but the wood then would be layered with gold on the outside to give it its beauty. Verse 10, and then he built chambers against all the house, five cubits high, and they rested on the house with timber of cedar. In other words, they covered it with roofs of wood. You would not be able to cover it with stone. That wouldn't work back then. They didn't have the technology to do that back then, so they would, the roof would always be wood. And so, once Solomon completes the main structure, verse 11 tells us that while the work's still ongoing, God interrupts the work to speak to Solomon. Verse 11, "'And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying,' concerning this house which you are in building. It's not done yet. If you will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with you, which I spoke unto David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. I love this. Because it's almost like you know Solomon's there looking, overseeing things, and it's like the Lord walks up and he's like, doing good so far, son. Concerning this house that you're a building, you've started on the path of obedience here, Solomon. You're following through on what your dad commissioned you to do. But here's what I have to say to you. If you follow through to the end, I'll be a part of this forever. I'll be a part of it too, forever. I read this at first, and I thought to myself, wait a second, Lord. Your promise to David wasn't conditional. What is this if about? If we look back at God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, 2 Samuel seven twelve, the Lord says to David through the prophet Nathan, and when your days be fulfilled, and you shall sleep with your fathers when you die, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit in iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you your throne shall be established forever and so i was struggling as i was looking through this i'm like lord this this is not a conditional promise why are you making this promise conditional to solomon it all hinges around the temple david being the kingly line the line of messiah is not a conditional promise But the temple's continued existence is not part of God's promise. It's not. And so God's continued participation, it's almost like the Lord says, concerning this thing you're building, I'm with you so far. But God's continued participation with Israel in the temple was conditioned upon Solomon's obedience. Now, some might say, but wait a second, how can you say God kept His promise about David's king, his throne, if Israel was exiled and no longer has a king on the throne. Well, remember, part of God's promise to David is God's discipline, right? If he disobeys, then I'll chasten him with many stripes, but I won't take my mercy away from him forever like I did with Saul. And God did that. When Israel's kings disobeyed, God removed the line of David from the throne, but not forever not like God did with Saul. And this is one of the most important and main themes of the book of Kings. The writer is writing to exiles who are thinking God's done with us. There's no hope. And he's saying to them, we may be exiles in Babylon, but God is not done with us. He will bring us back to the land, and he will restore our king. And that, that will be fully realized when Jesus returns. This is why it is so important not to confuse Israel with the church. Because when we do that, we make God a liar. Paul the Apostle will say, has God cast Israel off forever? He says, God forbid, which means let that thought die, which just blows me away because we have whole denominations that teach it. Let the thought die. Why is it part of our theology then? Clearly, we didn't let the thought die. God is not done with us. We need to repent is what the writer is saying. We need to start doing what Solomon didn't follow through on. We need to, as God puts it here, walk in his statutes, execute his judgments, and keep all his commandments. That was the conditional promise God made to Solomon. I'm with you in this temple project, Solomon, and I'll stay with you if you do this. What does it mean to walk in his statutes? Well, to walk means to stay on the path. God's statutes are God's standards, what is right and what is wrong. Solomon, you've got to stay on the path of what's right and what's wrong. Avoid the wrong and stay on the right. You've got to execute my judgments. It means to do or make happen what's in my heart. God's judgments are God's heart, how He views people and how He wants them to be treated. Solomon, you, you can't mistreat my people. And then thirdly, you need to keep all my commandments. God's commandments reveal His will, what He wants. To keep something, it means to cause a condition to stay the same, to guard it, to be careful with something. Solomon needed to follow through, not just with building the temple, but by staying on the path of God's standards, treating people the way God had wanted them to be treated, and to make sure God's commands remained in place. And as we continue through the book of Kings, we will see that Solomon fails to follow through in all three cases. And that's the writer's point. He's an exile, writing to exiles, and he says, we're in Babylon because we followed in Solomon's footsteps, and now we need to change that. And when we consider that God in You know, this wasn't just a guy writing a a letter or an account to people, his fellow exiles. When we consider that God inspired him to write this record, well, then it means God has an application here for us too. And so I ask you tonight, you know, what path are you on? Have you strayed off the path of God's standards? You know, what about how you view and treat people? Are you acting towards others based on God's heart? God's given us promises too, and He wants to work in our lives too. So let, let's not be those who miss out on it because we stray off the path or because we're too stubborn about treating, the people, uh, treating people the way we want to. And what about God's will? You know, we can look out at the culture and we can shake our fist and go, man, nobody wants to follow God. I can be a better example. I can be a better example than Solomon was, and I can influence people around me by remaining faithful to God's commands is what he wants. And that's the writer's final point here. Verse 13, do this, and I will dwell among the children of Israel. I will, my glory will be in this temple, and I will not forsake my people Israel. Solomon, your follow-through affects more than just you, It's going to affect your people. You ever want to read a sad part of the Bible? Read the account in the book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel shows God's glory leaving the temple bit by bit. We know from the book of Ezekiel that God's presence does leave the temple because Judah follows in Solomon's footsteps by not following through on their commitments to the Lord as well. So that's what it comes back to covenants, and character. God kept His promise to David, kept His promise to Israel, both in blessing and in discipline. You know, God's total Word needs to be stood on. You know, we like to stand on the blessings. We don't like to stand on the warnings. We don't tend to wake up and be, you know, I'm blessed and highly favored. God has warned me today that if I do this, this will happen. But that's a promise too. God keeps His promises. And then character. What can we learn from Solomon and Israel's failures? Well, are we following through? You know, are we staying close to the Lord? Let's all stand. But what a cool thought that Solomon's in the middle of this project. He's not even done yet, and you come down and you want to chat with him. What what an amazing thought to to think that the God of the universe would see something we're doing and say, I'm on board. I'm, I'm with you in this. Lord, it is so wonderful to know that we have these endeavors with our family or our work, right? Lord, you're, you're not separate from that. You want to be a part of those things in our lives. And so, Lord, we invite you in to be a part of, to lead us in those ways to communicate to us, Lord, what what you want for us in our our work environment, our our, our families, and maybe even how we interact with our our neighbors. Lead us just like you, you were leading Solomon here so that we can continue to be right in that place where you want us to be, right in the center of your will. And then, Lord, tonight we commit to you as you lead us that we'll be those who will follow through. In Jesus' name, amen.